Hey everyone, happy new year and welcome back to The Negotiation. The last six months have been amazing as we kicked off our podcast efforts and released 21 episodes that we were very proud of and given the feedback we've received, we know you've enjoyed them too. And frankly, that's the only reason we put in the work to deliver them to you every week. We're doubling down on our efforts for 2020, and first up is a good friend, mentor, and former colleague of mine, William Balbean. William is currently a partner at SOSV, where we worked together for nearly three years, and he's also the managing director of China Accelerator and Mox Mobile Only Accelerator. William has been involved in everything Internet in Asia since the early 2000s and talks about the early days of being an equity research analyst when the total market cap of all Asian Internet companies was about $3 billion. We also talk about SOSV's investment strategy of deploying funds into startups through their six accelerator programs, what the term mobile first mobile only means when talking about Internet in Asia. We talk about China Accelerator's high percentage of investments in blockchain technologies recently, as well as the main verticals they've been investing in, why SOSV is one of, if not the leader in investing in women-led startups globally. And you're also going to want to stick around till the end when William delivers his best advice to brands who want to enter China. William, what is something about China or a Chinese company that impresses you and why? Sure. So one of the amazing things about China is that it's one of the most competitive markets in the world. And in order to be competitive, uh, companies have embraced technology quicker here in China uh, than in many other markets. Probably the biggest one for me uh, is artificial intelligence, AI. Uh, so China might not be the best player in AI in the world. They might not have, you know, the best professors and the best uh, university students and the best PhDs. Um, but personalization, uh, using machine learning to personalize experiences for consumers and even for companies, has become table stakes, basically required to be competitive in China. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. William, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you and I go way back, and that will inevitably come out during the show. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up in China, and up to the point of your current position with SOSV, which we'll get into later. Yeah, sure. So growing up, my parents are both American, but my father's uh, family is originally from Scotland. They've been in the U.S. around 300 years. And my mother's family is originally from China, uh, and she's been in the, in the U.S. about 74 years. Uh, and so um, I, in college, studied Chinese for a couple of years. And back then, uh, this is a long time ago, everybody was studying Japanese. Uh, so our school had four years of Japanese, only two years of Chinese. And that really uh, uh, drove me to go live in Asia for the first time. Uh, I was in the early 90s, uh, and it was to study Mandarin. 
And so uh, it, once I got to Asia, I was actually living in Taipei at the time, uh, really uh, got uh, extremely excited by the vibrancy of the market, um, all the different opportunities. Uh, and so I kept on coming back. So when you got to China, where did you end up first? What were you getting into? I know that, you know, you went through the dot-com bubble and, you know, later on ended up with Singtel. So just cover a little bit about that time being in China. Sure. So the dot-com bubble popped. Uh, so uh, I was living in Asia before the dot-com bubble. I left Asia in 1997 to go to Wall Street. I worked for the head of tech research at Bear Stearns. And so I got the, the tech boom in the U.S., uh, but then I also got the tech bust. Uh, so uh, I came back out to Asia in 2002 with Deutsche Bank uh, to cover telecom equipment and home networking. Uh, so I was very much focused on consumer, uh, connected consumer. And back then, the way people connected, uh, consumers connected, was through um, wireless LAN, you know, Wi-Fi. Uh, and so you're just starting to get connected devices uh, but most of those devices were actually computers. And so we covered, you know, a lot of the Taiwan hub makers, you know, routers, very early days, D-Link and Gemtech, uh, which was uh, uh, the manufacturer got bought by Foxconn, the um, uh, manufacturer of all the, the, the Wi-Fi equipment that you, you would go and buy at Best Buy or Sam's or whatever. And so um, covered that. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the real growth market, Back in 2002, 2003, it was China. So I started covering uh, ZTE, which is a company that's recently been in the press around the trade war. Uh, this is back in 2003. I uh, took Huawei on their first global roadshow. Uh, and then 2004, started looking at China internet. Uh, because I had covered uh, U.S. internet or companies related to the U.S. Uh, internet sector, and I shared an office with uh, the analyst who uh, was actually responsible for U.S. internet, um, I jumped on the chance to to cover China, and this is the early days uh, before Alibaba was public, uh, before Baidu was public. Um, you know, Tencent had just gone public. Uh, it was my top pick back in 2005. At that point, they were worth less than one billion dollars. You know, now they're worth uh, almost a half a trillion dollars. So it was really the early days. China internet wasn't small cap. Uh, it was microcap, the total value of all the internet companies together uh, in China and in Asia was um, uh, was about $3 billion. And so I got in, uh, and I'm one of the few people uh, who was around back then. Uh, my job back then was to try and figure out how to explain uh, and introduce Alibaba 1.0, the B2B business, to international investors. Uh, and so I did that at Deutsche for five years. This is uh, 02 to 07. Um, and then uh, I, I basically helped a lot of people make a lot of money, especially on Tencent. Uh, and I decided to switch from the sell side, equity research, where I was explaining uh, the China internet to global investors and switch over to the buy side uh, as a, an investor myself. Uh, and I joined uh, SoftBank. Uh, as a partner in charge of uh, China investment. Uh, and that sort of launched my career into VC. Uh, I came late to it, relatively, uh, March 2007. Uh, but we've seen a lot of changes in China over the last 12, 13 years, a lot of opportunity. I made a lot of mistakes, um, but um, 
we've had a pretty fun journey uh, over the last uh, 13 years in BC. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like as far as like the culture in China around being an entrepreneur? Um, and, and we're going to talk about the other side of the table uh, as being an investor and what the angel investment VC fan, uh, landscape looked like in China. But first, talk a little bit about what was it like for young Chinese or even middle-aged Chinese to be an entrepreneur? What were they going through? What were they faced with? Uh, what kind of attitude and philosophy did and approach did they take to being an entrepreneur back, you know, 10, 13 years ago? The key for early China internet entrepreneurs was, let's see what's worked elsewhere, and then let's make it better. Uh, so if you want, from a Western standpoint, uh, if you want to understand how China internet works or how China internet entrepreneurs uh, function, what's their uh, modus operandi, what's their MO, it's the easiest way to understand it is uh, lean startup with Chinese characteristics. So lean startup, you uh, make some assumptions, you have some ideas, you make some assumptions, and then the next step is uh, you go out and uh, test those assumptions in the market, and then you write down what happens, and you quickly analyze what happened, uh, and then you come up with, uh, then you brainstorm, and you repeat the process. You make some more assumptions, and you test those in the market. And what China entrepreneurs do uh, is they very rapidly uh, make assumptions and test those assumptions. Now, if you read the Relean Startup book, what they're trying to do is encourage people to uh, use tests, you know, uh, very quick, easy, cheap tests. So not necessarily building an entire product to test the market, um, but building, uh, you know, testing behavior, building a fake product and seeing whether people will click the buy button. Now, if they click buy, they can't actually buy anything, but you want to test, will people click the buy button? The amazing thing about China is that um, because people work pretty hard and pretty quickly, they're actually launching working product as these tests. Uh, so if you, I don't know, read uh, uh, Connor Perkins, uh, Tom Doerr's book, Measure What Matters, he's talking about Google and, and, and Google's got these super ambitious, you know, six month and year long goals, uh, which is amazing. And they hit some of them and they miss some of them. Well, if you look at ByteDance, uh, they uh, have the same ambitious goals, but two to three month deadlines, not six to 12 month deadlines. And this is all around doing uh, a, a lot of quick iteration, a lot of quick tests at speed. Um, but instead of putting up a fake website, they'll actually put up a real website with a real buy button uh, and people will start clicking on it. Now, it won't work perfectly. You know, it'll probably break. But if there's enough people on the thing that it's breaking, you know, you know, you know, you got something uh, and then you move very quickly in that direction uh, and you build a second version that won't break. Talk a little bit about the other side of the table, you know, investors, investing, angel investing, even mentoring. What was that like in the early days? Well, the biggest challenge uh, is that I come from an investment background as an equity research uh analyst. Uh, my job was to understand the market, understand the companies, then explain them to investors and give them advice on what to invest in. And that's very different than actually investing oneself. And I went into early stage investment, which is very different than the, the type of uh, work I was doing previously. With early stage, there are no numbers. There is no revenue. 
Uh, and so the biggest challenge, the biggest difference was that uh, I needed to get startup experience. Uh, so I did two startups um, secretly, you know, and, and now they call it a side hustle. So my first side hustle was a complete and utter disaster. Uh, the smartest thing I ever did is shut it down after one year instead of dragging it out. Uh, but the second side hustle was um, uh, came out of the only thing that worked in the first side hustle, uh, which was our ability to get people to watch videos of people doing interesting things. Um, and so we did the second one. The, probably the most important thing uh, I learned uh, from the first one is I am a bad CEO. I should not be the CEO. And so for the second uh, company, I was not the CEO. I was more like the sales marketing uh, talking person uh, and BD strategy. Uh, and But uh, my co-founder, she was the CEO. So that uh, worked pretty well. We brought in our first client, uh, which was Vice Media. And this is 2009 uh, when uh, the whole content revolution uh, and uh, influencers and short form content by amazing creators that was just sort of bubbling up and, and starting they were only a 200 million dollar company uh three years later you know so in, in 2009 they were uh, they were a very very small company that just got funded and uh we learned a lot from that uh what we we did something that nobody had ever done before uh which is create massive viral campaigns using amazing content uh without spending any money uh so we it was at the time, uh, Vice Creators Project in 2010 was the largest uh, social campaign in the history of China. Um, and that was a, a huge learning experience. So when you are on the investor side, you, you need to have that experience of seeing something succeed. Uh, and then for SOSV, one of the rules is you know, our, our general partners have to have done a startup and they should have had a success. And we did succeed with that second start that I did. Uh, but they also should have had to fire their entire team uh, and understand what it feels like uh, to fail and let down the entrepreneur, uh, the, 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 not just uh, um, yourself as an entrepreneur, but also let down uh, the team that trusted you uh, to lead them uh, on, uh, on the, the merry adventure that is startup. Uh, so... There's this thing called startup grind. Uh, and it, it, is a, it is a grind. It's something that, that weighs on you. Uh, a lot of people uh, get extremely depressed. It is not easy. Um, the people who succeed uh, do it through repetitive failure. Uh, so um, being able to have a, had a success as well as many failures uh, is kind of t is, uh, what you need to uh, be an effective uh, investor. Um, because on the early stage side, a lot of times, you know, it's not, you know, you, you see people raising money, you, you see the successes. Um, but what you often don't see, uh, because people don't like to talk about it is what is required to get there. Uh, and as an early stage investor, uh, we try and provide a framework and support, uh, for the entrepreneurs as they go through this process. And it's not a, always a fun and exciting process. But uh, starting up and investing in early stage uh, is um, can be a huge uh, amount of fun, and it's a lot easier if you do it in a group. It's a lot easier if you have a, a support system around you, 
which is why for SSV, we have China Accelerator and Mox, as well as four other accelerators. Uh, we do early stage as a group. I think it would be uh, maybe a good time for, for you to, to share a little bit about how, why SOSV um, does it the way that they do, right? The, the rebranding to SOSV, the, the Accelerator VC, uh, was predicated, and obviously China Accelerator was the first accelerator. You alluded to the fact that now there's six. Maybe speak a little bit to why this investment model of going all in on accelerators. Yeah, so I, I did four years at SoftBank doing early stage, uh, and then another four years doing early stage for Singtel Innovate. Uh, so after eight years of you know making mistakes, uh, some of the companies I invested in started to do well. Um, and uh, yeah, I was looking for a change mostly because um, I believe in uh, profit share and carried interest, uh, which is how um, VCs make money. Uh, we invest. Uh, and then we, along with the founders of the companies, have to wait until there's an exit. and We only get paid on the exit. Uh, but uh, uh, if you're going to be you know, through the journey with the entrepreneur, I believe that the, the, the VC should get a profit, interest, profit share uh, alongside the, the founders. Um, whereas uh, some VCs are more like a corporate development uh, role and there is no profit share. So I joined SOSV. We are a VC. Uh, we're a full stack. VC focused on verticals, um, and these verticals are hard tech, deep tech, uh, and uh, areas where we find challenges. So we were first in the hardware, um, first accelerator, hardware accelerator in the world, Hacks, as you mentioned. We did the first biotech accelerators in the world, uh, IndieBio and RebelBio, uh, and the first independent food accelerator, FoodX. Uh, and then, so China Accelerator and now uh, Mox, uh, the, the first accelerators in Asia and the first in China. And so in early stage, we want to help our companies. We, we are a VC. We invest. Uh, we invest multiple times. We support the companies throughout their journey. But in the early stage, uh, we want to, you know, we want to provide value. So there's other VCs that have, you know, a small army of people, uh, who help out with HR and sales and, and other stuff. Uh, we do the same. Uh, and the way we deliver that help to the entrepreneurs is through accelerator programs. Uh, so we have six. Um, we're global. Uh, we help companies from all around the world. And for China Accelerator and Mox, we help companies uh, expand to Asia. Uh, so China Accelerator is enterprise across Asia and China market entry, mostly China in, although some China out. Uh, and then Mox is companies from around the world and Asia focus on Southeast Asia and South Asia. And Mox stands for Mobile Only Accelerator. Uh, it's uh, we're, uh, referencing uh, the the next four billion internet users whose first experience or only experience with the internet will be on a mobile phone. So the Mobile Only Accelerator. Uh, and so we're helping companies that are a little bit later stage. They already have product market fit. They already have revenue. And we're helping them come to Asia and then expand cross-border within Asia. Uh, so China market entry is not easy. You, know, you look at Amazon, they got their butt kicked. You look at Google, they went from 70% market share down to single-digit market share before they decided to pull out. Uh, and they did decide to pull out. Uh, Uber is probably the best example of a success case. They fought to a draw. You know, both sides had to spend about $2 billion. Uh, and they're pretty pretty equal before uh, they decided to uh, sell uh, to Didi. 
Uh, and they turned their $2 billion into $7 billion worth of DD stock. So not a bad outcome. Um, but China China's hard. Uh, and so what we do, what the value that we add is helping international companies, uh, startups, and internet and software enter China. Ever since I've known you, one of the things that you've consistently said, and I'm not sure if you've actually been saying it recently since I left, but one of the things that you have said often and often and often is mobile first, mobile only. Uh, mobile first, mobile only. Can you describe a little bit about where that comes from, what it means, and why you say it? Well, no, in the past, people used to call India or Indonesia or China like an emerging market or a developing market. Uh, and that implies that there's something or lesser or wrong with the market. Uh, and what we're seeing in China and India and Indonesia uh, is a leapfrog effect where because the there's not so much baggage, because there's not like a century or a century and a half of retail infrastructure and financial infrastructure from credit cards to uh, SMS, um, people are, are able to embrace new technology faster. Uh, so if you look at India, um, you know, India was paper money uh, and the government basically got rid of the Indian version of the $100 bill. Uh, said you have to turn them all into the banks uh, because on this date, they will no longer be accepted. Uh, it was called demonetization uh, and it drove massive movement to wallets. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, US uh, mobile wallet usage uh, was uh, a fifth, you know, about 50 billion US dollars. Uh, and this is, uh, I think it's a 2017 number. So, uh, so U.S. used to be one fiftieth the size of China. Now it's 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 up to fifty billion dollars in annual transactions. So it's now caught up. You know, it's only one twentieth the size of China because China mobile wallet usage is twelve and a half trillion dollars a year. Uh, so uh, you know, it's like a it's a it's it's a you know, order of magnitude or two larger than the U.S. So this is a, this is an opportunity. And so we come up with a, a slightly different name. Um, we're looking not at the rich Indians, uh, but at sort of the next generation, the mass market. So there's a, there's a good number of Indians, about 30 million plus Indians that make seven, $8,000 a year. And they're, they make about as much money as, uh, say, Mexicans. Um, but then if you look at the next layer below, uh, Indians that are making 1200, 1500 us a year, there's a lot more of them. It's a lot bigger market. Um, and it's mirrored, not just in India, but also in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, to some extent, the Middle East, uh, Africa, Latin America, South America, uh, we call it the next 4 billion. Uh, it's a lot of people and they will use mobile phones and the internet increasingly. You know, we have $50 Androids now, and uh, the cost of mobile data is coming down. Uh, and this is a revolution that will, uh, we think, uh, change the world, have a mass, massive positive impact on the world. Um, and it's an area uh, just like our, our synthetic bio and biotech and our hardware. Uh, we think that this is sort of a, an edge uh, outlier opportunity uh, that we want to be all over. Uh, so. Uh, we've been all over it. We went hard into China uh, starting 10 years ago, uh, into India starting uh, four years ago. 
Uh, now we're going into markets like Bangladesh and Pakistan and uh, moving over to Eastern Europe and then, uh, and then beyond. Uh, we think that this is a huge opportunity uh, to make the world a better place. Uh, for example, we are using mobile technology uh, and uh, collecting uh, data on users. Uh, we don't know who they are, uh, so we're not violating their privacy. Uh, but we know what they're doing. And for the first time ever, we're opening up financial services. You know, the ability to get a small business loan uh, to people who previously were maybe unbanked or underbanked, um, but they certainly could not get a loan uh, and, uh, you know, try and improve their, their lives. Uh, so we think this is a massive opportunity. This mobile first, mobile only, uh, next 4 billion space. You also introduced me to an interesting way of looking at how the Chinese operated. An interesting way of how the Chinese operate through looking at Tencent. You spoke to the number of product departments that, that uh, Tencent used to have at one point, and you spoke about the innovator's dilemma. Can you describe that a little bit for our audience? Yeah, sure. So um, innovator's dilemma, I think it's Andy Grove. It's a, oh, wait, uh, no, he's, he wrote another one, Only the Paranoid Survive. Uh, but the innovator's dilemma is, um, you know, do you want to, uh, you know, you have a product that's making a lot of money. Do you want to disrupt yourself or do you want somebody else to come along and disrupt you? And Chinese companies traditionally have not had a problem to the extent that American or Western European companies have had with uh, disruption, having somebody else come in and disrupt them because they disrupt themselves. Uh, and the way they do it is they give a lot more independence to their product managers and their group managers than American companies uh, or Western European companies. It's a lot less, it's more, there's still a structure, it's still a pyramid, but there's a lot more decentralization, uh, which is a popular word these days, but there's a lot more independence of product groups. So back then, you know, this is six, seven years ago, Tencent had 519 product groups. Now there's thousands. And each of these product groups operates as an independent company with its own, you know, product manager, which is basically the CEO. Uh, and they have a budget, they have a team. And if they do well, they get more budget, more team. If they don't do well, uh, they get shut down and, and, and reassigned. Uh, and so, um, you have products now that are worth, you know, 200, 300 billion dollars that were started off as just three person people and an idea with a budget. And giving people that independence um, allows uh, rapid uh, innovation, a lot more nimble um, execution, uh, and you know, growth. So you, for Tencent, you know, they've had some issues around uh, regulation with their games, but this is a company that's you know, half a trillion dollar company, and they're doing I don't know, ten, fifteen billion a quarter in uh, revenue or something like that. But it's still growing twenty, thirty percent. 40% sometimes year on year. Uh, so this type of uh, structure uh, allows uh, really, really, really rapid uh, expansion. Um, but people think that it's, you know, they're dealing with a company. Uh, it's actually thousands of companies uh, tied together under an umbrella. China Accelerator has uh, made quite the mark in investing in blockchain recently and been very successful. I'm Wanting to ask a little bit about blockchain in China as an industry. Um, a while back, we had Jordan Rosenberg on the show as well, talking about Bitcoin uh, more specifically and, and China's 
play and presence in, in, in that world. But talk a little bit about blockchain, talk a little bit about Bitcoin and what China Accelerator has been doing. And then I want to ask you, if possible, to talk to about talk a little bit about some of the industries that are really, really super interesting that people should be paying more attention to in China, such as um, fintech, such as uh, education, maybe such as healthcare with an aging population. Um, talk a little bit about some of those really, really interesting uh, verticals that are happening in China um, after you talk to us a little bit about blockchain. Sure. So uh, we started investing in blockchain companies in 2015, which for an equity VC was quite early. So I think uh, TechCrunch did a survey at, in 2018. So we were, I believe, tied for number four most active VC uh, in blockchain in 2017 and early 2018, um, tied for number four in the world. Uh, and actually, we were also uh, tied for number three in the world in investment in AI. Uh, companies. Uh, yes, we invest in a lot of companies. We uh, so we, we often are at the top of the league tables, uh, the, the the rankings in terms of number of companies by sector. Um, but our approach on blockchain is similar to our approach in AI in that we think this is an enabling technology that allows people to solve problems that were not easily solved before. So you had a lot of companies out there trying to do tokens and then raise money on tokens. And most of the time, um, the token was not really required. You could probably do uh, these, uh, you know, you could probably solve the problem with an Excel spreadsheet or you know, with a traditional technology. Uh, but what we, we, we focused on, we did about four investments in crypto, uh, including BitMEX, which is now the number one crypto exchange in the world by trading volume. Uh, and uh, we invested in about 25, 26 uh, blockchain companies. Uh, I did not invest in companies doing their own protocols, um, and we didn't invest in companies that were uh, raising, uh, you know, selling tokens. Uh, some of the companies we invested in sold tokens later, but when we invested in them, you know, we put in cash, we got equity. Uh, and what was the focus? Uh, well, using blockchain to solve uh, a problem. Uh, so, uh, and, and some of these problems are not particularly sexy. Uh, but it's all around trust, transparency, uh, security. Uh, and so if you look at China, uh, China's got a lot of rice. You know, they, they also have corn, but mostly it's rice. Uh, and, you know, one of our partners makes machinery, uh, which processes 70% of the world's corn and a large amount of the world's rice. And these machines, they make the machines, they sell them. The, their customers put these machines in buildings that are one kilometer long. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, and uh, the fun thing about them, you know, they're processing the rice and they, they have a little camera with an awesome algorithm and it measures um, the rice as it goes through the machine. You know, lots of rice in China. Uh, and the price of the rice is determined based on how many broken kernels there are. Uh, and so you got the rice going through. Uh, and uh, what was happening is some of the people who were processing the rice were messing around with the pictures and uh, replacing the actual pictures uh, with other pictures where uh, fewer of the rice kernels were broken. So what does that mean? Well, if you fiddle with the pictures, you can actually charge more for the rice. Uh, so one of our companies has a potential solution for this. We can blockchain enable the camera. 
so that if you, uh, you can still change the photos. Um, but because it's blockchain enabled, we can tell. Uh, and this brings transparency and trust to the supply chain. Um, and it might not sound super sexy, but, uh, you know, we're in China, right? This is a big business. Okay. As we get closer to the end, jump on some of the other verticals that are, that you find are really interesting where, where China's pretty much way out in front. So one area where China's way out behind, uh, is, uh, they, um, got introduced to something called fast food, <laughs> uh, KFC, you know, <laughs> McDonald's, yeah. um, you know, for a while there, KFC and McDonald's, because they were sourcing from farms, uh, that had really, you know, uh, good, good, clean water and not so much pollution. Um, people thought that McDonald's and KFC were, were actually health food. Uh, and so, um, you've got an entire generation that grew up on it. Also, you've got, um, you know, folks that didn't have a lot to eat, you know, 30, 40 years ago, or they didn't, they had, you know, they had the shortage of oil. Uh, so you've got a, a generation and a half of uh, people here who've grown up on extremely unhealthy food. Um, you know, when you have no meat, you want to eat meat. When you have meat, you eat a lot of meat. And so China's got one of the highest rates of like uh, lifestyle diseases in the world, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes. I don't know what the actual number is, but maybe like a third of the population has uh, diabetes or is getting close. Um, so um, uh, we're, we're uh, working with uh, companies, large corporations, marrying them with startups that can help uh, address these lifestyle uh, diseases at scale. Uh, and we're doing it not just in China, but we're also doing it in India and other markets. Um, we think this is a, a huge opportunity to make people's lives better. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, it's also a huge opportunity, uh, you know, uh, from an from a investment standpoint, uh, because there's just so many people suffering from these lifestyle diseases that it's a mass market. Uh, and, you know, that's a shame. We want to help fix it. Um, but it's a mass market. It's a huge market. So. Uh, SOSV overall, hardware, bio, internet, food, uh, tech, and agritech, we're 30% health. Um, you know, health is uh, one of the biggest problems facing uh, the, the world today. Uh, and uh, across the different verticals, uh, we're super engaged in health. And so, uh, for example, yeah, how do you get people to take their medication? You know, if you've got diabetes and you don't take your medication, you will die. Uh, and, uh, you'll feel okay up until pretty much the end. Uh, and so, uh, we, uh, we've seen challenges of people who, you know, they, they go to the doctors when they feel bad. Uh, and there's a lot, the large, you know, this next 4 billion, there's a lot of people who don't know how to properly use, a um, a, a health system, a medical system. Uh, China's got, uh, great hospitals there over 50 percent of the hospitals in china are private now uh, but most people do not know how to use the healthcare system uh, and you know if they feel good they stop taking their pills so this is one of the biggest challenges across uh, this, these mobile first mobile only markets and we've invested in companies that uh, help solve uh, the problem uh, and the funny thing is we do it a little bit differently we don't bother people you know if you tell somebody to do something you know, in, in the U.S. or Western Europe or in China, they, odds are they probably won't do it. They're like, screw you, I'm not going to do it. 
Um, so what we do um, is we partner with uh, the entire ecosystem. We partner with the hospitals. We partner with the doctors. Uh, and especially we partner with the family members and the pharma companies. And between all the different stakeholders, uh, we partner with the entire ecosystem. And combined, we can make the patient take their pills. Uh, and so we think that's a, a huge opportunity. In China, you've got uh, Ping An, a good doctor. Uh, for India, uh, we've got a company called Fable, uh, P-H-A-B-L-E. Uh, and uh, we think that this is a, a huge opportunity, uh, plus a, a huge uh, issue, challenge uh, that uh, we should focus on. So that's health. The second area, uh, fintech. So uh, not so much in China, because China has Ant Financial and some other very large players. Um, but taking uh, a, a note from the China playbook and bringing it to other markets. Um, for example, China was 80% of global uh, microloans, P2P loans, because personal credit, small, medium credit was traditionally not available to Chinese businesses and Chinese consumers. Well, it's also not available to uh, consumers and small businesses in Indonesia, India, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Pakistan. They also have the similar challenges. And so we're leveraging the power of mobile um, to, uh, to bring, uh, you know, microloans, small loans, business loans uh, to people who could not get them before. Uh, and we've got pretty low, we're not, we're not talking about payday loans here. We're talking about, you know, pretty high quality uh, loans, very low, you know, sub 4% and in some cases sub 1% default rates. Uh, and, uh, and really life changing, uh, for folks. Uh, sometimes they need a, uh, they, they do use it as a payday loan, but sometimes they're using it to, to, so that they can sell more, you know, so that they can buy inventory for a peak period. Uh, and we think this is a, a huge opportunity. Uh, we're about 10 to 15% fintech. Uh, and then the last one you mentioned, uh, education. Um, a lot of the mobile first, mobile only countries, they really focus on standardized tests. So in the West, you have the SAT or the ACT, or you have to take your, you know, your A-levels or whatever. Um, you have to take up a lot of exams. Well, Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, China is very much focused on exams. And taking exams, scoring high, higher in those exams is a pathway uh, to a better future. And so we're leveraging the Internet uh, to, to help. Uh, we do it actually through our investment. We also do it through the SOSV Foundation. Uh, so we back companies like Vidyakul in India. Uh, and all it is, is we help uh, enable high school teachers uh, to, uh, who, who are, are posting videos, uh, explanations on YouTube and other video platforms. You know, we help them uh, to turn those videos into courses uh, to better monetize and manage uh, their students uh, to reach more people. Uh, and so think about it like uh, uh, people who can't get a tutor or their school system might not be that great. Uh, they can now get uh, grade A teaching um, for, uh, uh, for, for their college entrance or their, even their medical school entrance exams uh, over the Internet. Uh, and we've also backed another company, uh, which is a not-for-profit called Khan Academy. Um, they're a much bigger company, uh, and uh, they're not-for-profit. Uh, we support them through our, our, our foundation, and, and Sean O'Sullivan, uh, the founding managing partner of our fund, uh, is uh, on the board of that. So those are three areas that we're extremely active in. 
Last question I want to ask and, and something that I was very proud of when I was at China Accelerator and, and the batch, it, it kind of points to the batch seven that you and I did together where I can't think of another accelerator um, that actually not only graduated 50% female founders, but we had 50% graduation rate of female CEOs. SOSV has been lauded and applauded uh, globally for its investment in women-led, women-founded, women-co-founded um, startups. Is there anything that SOSV is doing specifically or anything that you can point to why SOSV has had so much success in investing in women-led startups? Um, well, we don't have a mandate for it. Uh, so we were number one most active investor in female-led startups like three years ago, and then two years ago we were number two, and now we're number five. So we're very happy that there are people ahead of us now. Um, so there's no, uh, we don't have a specific mandate. Um, so, you know, think about, uh, impact or the UN has this uh, framework for, uh, global sustainability and 60% of our investments each year fall into that framework. That's fully 90 companies a year, making us probably the most active impact investor in the world. Uh, we also don't have a mandate there. Um, but, um, what we do is we, we go after opportunities where there can be a huge impact. So we're 60% health, uh, sorry, 30% health, which is, you know, half of the 60%. Um, and for female-led startups, uh, the way I usually think about it is we invest in entrepreneurs that uh, are making a difference and, and we think will make money. And so if the market wants to undervalue a female-led startup, uh, well, we'll, we're more than happy to take advantage of that opportunity and invest in that entrepreneur and support them, uh, or the, the, the group of entrepreneurs, the co-founders. Uh, and so what we'll, we hope will happen is that the Delta, the difference between female led entrepreneurs and male led entrepreneurs will close because people will see us making so much money, uh, in these female led startups, uh, that they will, um, reduce their bias. Hopefully, uh, you know, if it's not consciously, hopefully unconsciously. Uh, and so, uh, but in the meantime, we're going to back up the truck uh, and make money. Uh, and, uh, and one, uh, you know, we, we get a, a awesome entrepreneurs that uh, seem to be overlooked by the market. And we're going to take advantage of that. Well, here, here, and amen to that. The last question, what is your best piece of advice for brands looking to enter China? Sure, it's pretty easy. Usually, when you roll out in your first market or your home market, you you understand that market. You know, you you've had experience, hopefully, uh, or you know, just getting from uh, you know just your initial launch and into the market, you've got some success. So usually, companies are not looking to come to China unless they have some success somewhere, and that usually comes be, uh, in part because they have local market knowledge. Uh, so. Uh, when you go to China, you have to realize that you don't have local market knowledge. Uh, so you have to behave differently. Uh, you uh, need to experiment a bit more. You need to focus on the data. You cannot rely on your gut instinct. In fact, you have to ignore your gut instinct because your gut instinct is based on the rules of the road or the, your experience in your home market. And China is not your home market. Uh, it's a different market. I can give you an example. So, um, you know, Amazon. Uh, Amazon makes lots of money. They generally, you know, they make money on a bunch of different things, but, you know, they sell stuff 
uh, and they make a, a margin in and around it, right? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of like the, the, the tried and true method for monetizing in e-commerce. Uh, you sell advertising on there. You sell, you know, you, you take a cut of each transaction. Um, but if you look at uh, China, people make money in different ways. So the number one e-commerce platform in China is Alibaba. You know, they have Taobao, they have Tmall, they have AliExpress, they have Lazada. Um, but in China, where do they make their money? Do they make their money on the commerce? Uh, do they make their money on taking a cut of every transaction? Uh, they make money in different ways. So, you know, one of the ways they make money is on advertising. Um, so in, in the US, Amazon doesn't make money on advertising so much as they make money on, on taking a cut. In China, uh, Alibaba makes money on advertising. Um, they also make money uh, through something called Double Eleven. It's called Singles Day. It's uh, November 11th. And uh, it makes uh, Black Friday look like a rounding error. It is the single largest shopping day uh, in the world. Uh, and uh, so um, why? Because people give massive discounts, huge discounts. Um, so what happens uh, is uh, because the discounts are so big, people who don't have very much money, uh, they take out loans. So they will actually borrow in order to buy as much as they can of staples and, and regular products, not just TVs and stereos and stuff, but products that they will use in their daily lives for the next three, four, and five months. So you'll see their apartments stacked up with food and, and uh, you know, like toilet paper or whatever, uh, you know, because it's, it's so heavily discounted, you can get a good deal. So, so much so that they'll take out loans. Uh, so what happens on the other side? Well, who are they taking out the loans from? Ant Financial, which is a company you mentioned earlier. Uh, they are a uh, the finance arm, uh, the fintech platform for Alibaba. Uh, now, what happens when people are taking out loans to buy? Well, on the other side, because we have just-in-time delivery in China and, and people expect the same day or in the next uh, at least uh, one or two days, the companies, the sellers have to build up enough inventory to supply uh, the demand. So what do they do? Well, they have to take out loans. And uh, where are they getting those loans? They're getting those loans from Ant Financial. So you create a market where there's a lot of commerce going around, uh, and the way they're uh, they're monetizing, you know, over over a million, million five loans to different small, medium businesses, uh, and that's to support uh, the shopping day. And on the other side, you have the consumers taking out loans also from Ant Financial uh, in order to do the shopping. So the monetization is not in the way that it's done in the West, which is taking a cut of the sale. Uh, it's in providing financial services to the sellers and the buyers uh, as they drive purchasing on one single day. Uh, so uh, uh, when you go to China, um, the business model, the way you make money uh, is not always the same uh, as in other markets. Uh, so keep an open mind, uh, focus on the data, and don't go with your gut instinct. How can people get in touch with you, SOSV, or apply to China Accelerator or Mox or so on? Okay, so um, I am uh, william.bao.bean at sosv.com. Um, um, there's only one of me on uh, LinkedIn, William Bao Bean, so you can find me there. 
uh, although I'm running out of room. I had no idea that LinkedIn had a capacity limit of 30,000. But anyway, you can add me on there. Uh, and uh, um, China Accelerator is ChinaAccelerator.com. It's one word. Um, just Google that. Mox is MobileOnlyX.com. Uh, introductions to our programs and how to apply are there. So if you've got a startup that you want to take to Asia, you think that can solve a problem out here, uh, or a startup in Asia that you want to go cross-border with, or, or even large brands. You know, We work with uh, five of the top 10 uh, consumer products brands in the world, helping them in China, Unilever, Unilever AB InBev, J&J, uh, Nestle, and one we can't talk about. Um, so uh, even if you're a large corporation, we can also help. Uh, so uh, please reach out, get in touch, and uh, look forward to helping you guys uh, go cross-border. William, my old friend, it has been great to talk to you. I'm glad to see how successful that you and everybody at SOSV, my old alma mater, have been. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.